And when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Again, good to see you here today. Christmas season for so many is a season of watching movies that you've watched before. And um, I'm curious, how many movies are there where, where the sequel is better than the original? you might be able to think of one afterwards. I can think of almost no movies in which the second movie is better than the first movie. Some say, you know, Godfather 2 is better than Godfather 1. That's a sermon for a different day, but I disagree strongly. Um, Frozen 2, kids, is Frozen 2 better than Frozen 1? Anybody think so? Uh, It's 50-50, I would say. Okay, some say yes, some say no, I haven't seen Frozen 2. Fast and the Furious, you know, 11, how's that one? Uh, We don't know. Um, Most films are not better the second time around unless um, the first film is designed to have a sequel. That's almost the only circumstance that I can think of in which the second movie is better than the first. I can think of a few movies where the second is better than the first, but I won't mention them right now. Um, The Bible story is like this too. Um, The New Testament is the sequel. And the New Testament is not plan B added on when plan A didn't work. The New Testament as a sequel was planned from the very beginning. And more than any other of the four gospels, the gospel of Matthew is intent on communicating to us how the New Testament and the story of Jesus fulfills all of what God has begun to do in the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures are, they're always 
pressing forward. They're there to make people ask for the conclusion of the story. A number of years ago, uh, Ben, my youngest son, and I uh, read through, uh, he, I think he read the first one with Marianne and the last couple with me, The Wingfeather Saga. It's a four-part book series by Andrew Peterson. Those are books I would highly recommend. They're, they're so well done. And, and when Ben was younger, we would read those uh, usually at night before bed. And, and when we would finish a chapter, almost every time, Ben would say, just one more chapter. Just one more chapter. I want to know what happens next. That's the feeling the Old Testament story is meant to give followers of Jesus when we read it. And we see Matthew teaching us through these chapters and verses this morning that the entire narrative of what we've been seeing in Matthew is the sequel. It is the fulfillment of all that God begun to do in the Old Testament. We're finishing up this morning the Christmas narratives of the life of Jesus, and next week we'll move on to the transitional ministry of John the Baptist. And what I want you to see, you may have already noticed how often Matthew does this, is how often Matthew writes things like, this was done to fulfill what so-and-so prophet wrote, and then he quotes a text from the Old Testament. Just in these verses that Jonathan read for us, Matthew does that three times, three times in the span of 10 verses, because Matthew wants us to see that this is the sequel. It's the sequel to what God has already been writing. When we begun Matthew's gospel in the sermon on the genealogy, I said that one of the main principles of Matthew's gospel is the principle of fulfillment. Fulfillment is a one-word summary of the entire gospel. And these verses can be organized. In fact, I think we, could, we should organize them by thinking about how Matthew sees these events of Jesus' infancy being fulfillments of Scripture. Three times, verse 15, verse 18, and verse 23, Matthew says that scripture is fulfilled. So what I want to do with you this morning in the next couple of minutes is show you how and why that matters for us now. Let's look at this text in in three sections. It's so interesting to see that even in his earliest years, even in his infancy, Jesus Christ fulfills all of God's promise to his people. The three sections, I think, can come under these headings. First, Jesus leads a new exodus. Second, Jesus sparks raging hostility. And third, Jesus comes from deep lowliness. Okay, so there's your three-point outline for those of you that enjoy that sort of thing. Let's look first at the idea that Jesus leads a new exodus. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. The story picks up again. Where we left off last week, the Magi have left and an angel appears again to Joseph, Jesus' father, and warns him to flee from Herod, who we read is about to search for the child, for Jesus, to destroy him. And so, ever obedient Joseph packs his family up. Notice he does it in the middle of the night. The idea there is that he immediately obeys and they go to Egypt. And they live in Egypt until the death of Herod, which would have been, by the way, a number of years. So Jesus' earliest years, his years as a toddler and as an elementary school kid, were likely spent in Egypt. And Egypt would have been a natural place for Joseph to take his family. 
Uh, the city of Alexandria in first century uh, the first century world actually was a major hub of Jewish Jewish expatriates and refugees. Probably close to a million Jews alone lived in the city of Alexandria, and that's almost certainly where Joseph went. But Matthew tells us in verse 15 that Joseph's intent was to protect Jesus in obedience to God, but God's intent was even more than that. Look at what Matthew writes. This move to Egypt, he says, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So, in the sovereign plan of God, something about Jesus coming out of Egypt is a fulfillment of what God has already been doing. How might that be? Okay, let me show you. Matthew is saying... That Jesus is the new Moses. Are you familiar with the story of Moses? Uh, It's the story of the Exodus. Moses, thousands of years before, like Jesus, was hunted down as a baby by a mad tyrant. Pharaoh, in his case, Jesus, uh, Herod in Jesus' case. And, and Moses, like Jesus, was protected by his parents. And like Herod, Pharaoh murdered every child age two and under in an attempt to stop the population growth of the ancient Israelites. And while Jesus flees to Egypt, later in his life, Moses flees from Egypt until it is safe for him to return. God told Moses to return to Egypt when Pharaoh was dead, just like God told Joseph to return to Israel when Herod was dead. Matthew is setting this up for attentive readers of the Bible to see that Jesus is coming to do what Moses had done. But there's even more to it than that. Not only is Matthew saying Jesus is a new Moses, he's saying Jesus is a new Israel. He's a new Israel. Jesus' flight to Egypt is replaying the entire history of Israel in miniature. Every one of the patriarchs, from Abraham to Joseph, had to flee to Egypt. And and the quote that Matthew gives from the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11.1, says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Hosea six or 700 years before Jesus was born, wrote that he wasn't referring to Moses. He was referring to Israel as a nation. Jesus or God calls Israel my son. And, and Hosea isn't looking forward in that prophecy. Rather, what he's doing is looking backward. Hosea, when he wrote that, was reflecting on how God had delivered his people out of bondage and slavery, slavery from Egypt and had miraculously rescued them through the crossing of the Red Sea. And so Matthew, in using that particular quote in this particular moment, is telling us something really important. He's saying that Jesus's life and mission is a replay, a sequel of the story of the Exodus. Just as the people of God in the Old Testament were rescued out of slavery through Moses, now the people of God, you and me, are rescued out of a deeper and darker slavery 
a spiritual oppression and bondage to sin through Jesus Christ. Very interestingly, later in his life, when Jesus takes a couple of his best friends up on the mountain and is transfigured in front of them, remember Moses and Elijah appear. And in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Moses and Jesus, Luke chapter 9, were speaking about Jesus's exodus. That's what Luke says, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus is leading a new exodus out of bondage for God's people. We see again here what we've already seen in Matthew and what's so important for you to see about your own life. Our deepest problem is that we are slaves. Our deepest problem is that we are in bondage, bondage to sin, and we cannot liberate ourselves. We need someone to rescue us. Sin doesn't just make you guilty, although it certainly does that too. Sin steals away your freedom. And ironically, we think that the things that bind us as slaves will be what free us. We think that those things will be what free us to live fuller, happier lives, but it never, ever works. One of the questions the Holy Spirit presses on me this week as I study this, and that I hope he presses on you, is what are you in bondage to? Some of you can't escape the need you have to be seen as impressive, to be seen as great, and it's actually enslaving you. You'll do whatever it takes to look good to others, and you've got it wrapped around your ankle like a ball and chain. Some of you uh, can't stop trying to make other people happy. You are people pleasers, and, and you're giving your life away, looking for the approval of others that really you can only truly find in your Heavenly Father. Some of you are bound by what Pat Riley, the coach of the Lakers, called the disease of more. The disease of more, more money, more stuff, more fun is going to satisfy me, but really it just enslaves you. And we can't get out of these vicious cycles on our own. Jesus has to come and liberate us. We need a new exodus. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with someone who's thinking about becoming a Christian. And that's always one of my favorite things to do because it it refreshes for me the beauty of our faith. And, And I was talking to this person about if Christianity is true or not, if these things really happened, which of course is an important question. But this person asked, I'm not so much interested about whether or not it's true. I think I believe it's true. What I want to know is it does it actually change me? Does it actually change me? Will it actually make a difference in my life? And I was able to say, actually, yes, not only will it change you, it inevitably changes you because you are being released from bondage. Jesus leads us into a new exodus. That's the first thing he wants us to see. The second thing Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus sparks raging hostility. Look at what happens next in the story. Herod, 
realizes that the Magi weren't going to lead him to King baby Jesus, and he goes into a rage. Now, we saw this a little bit last week about Herod, but just quick side note, Herod was a crazy tyrant, especially later in his life. Uh, We know from first century historian Josephus that he killed three of his own sons because he felt like they were a threat to his rule. And when Herod was about to die in the city of Jerusalem, he arranged it so that when he died, multiple other influential and beloved leaders in the Jerusalem community would be murdered on that day too, so that the people of Jerusalem would genuinely mourn on the day Herod died. What a guy, right? Uh, Not the greatest guy in the world. And Matthew writes that Herod, that Herod, crazed, deranged Herod, became furious and sent and, and killed with soldiers all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region who were two years old and under. Verse 16. Happy Christmas Eve. Uh, it's a dark part of the Christmas story, isn't it? Bethlehem was a small town probably about 2,000 people. So this is likely, you know, 10 to 20 children, but still a terrible atrocity. And last week, we looked briefly at Herod's response to Jesus. And we saw that Herod responded, obviously, by rejecting Jesus. King Herod can't handle another king in town, and he'll do anything he can to get rid of the other king. And we saw that we all have a little bit of Herod inside of us, the heart of man, according to Romans chapter 8, is hatred towards God, apart from the work of Jesus. And that's part of the point here. But there's another critical point to be made from this grisly section of the story. Here, here it is. Jesus' coming always sparks rage. It always sparks hostility from the powers that be. That's a part of why Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, A second time in verse 18, he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Jeremiah wrote that half a millennium before Matthew wrote this as Israel was going into exile into the nation of Babylon. And Jeremiah was reflecting backwards too on when Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel, lost her children as they went into Egypt in exile. And Matthew's point is that there's always going to be, there's always going to be great pain and great hurt among God's people because the world hates Jesus Christ. The world hates Jesus. The world is opposed to God. And so Jesus' coming and the message of the gospel sparks raging hostility from the powers of darkness. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation, is in so many ways an enigma. But in Revelation chapter 12, the apostle John paints a picture through the vision that he is given by God of a dragon. And the dragon represents the devil. And the dragon is awaiting this child who is about to be born from this woman who is laboring with birth pains. And John sees in his vision a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns waiting to devour 
the child as the woman is about to give birth. It's, it's a pictorial image of what we see here in the slaughtering of the innocents and what we still see all around the world when the gospel of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus goes forth. The forces of evil always try to devour what God is doing in Jesus. It creates rage. It creates war. It's kind of a downer. So why does Matthew decide to include this quote and this part of the story in his gospel. He does it, I think, to sympathize with the always grieving people of God and to tell us not to be overwhelmed by the great evils that we see and that many of us will face. We live still today in a world that will rage We live in a world of brutal wickedness and violence. That was true in Bethlehem in 4 BC. It's true ever since, and it's still true. I read an excerpt this week from a book by a woman named Samantha Powers, and the book is entitled, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. And Sounds like a great read over Christmas, right? And um, at one point in the book, she says this, uh, quote, During the 20th century, she writes, there were not only two world wars, but at least six major cases of genocide. The mass killing of Armenians by Turks in 1915, of Jews by Hitler, of Cambodians by the Khmer Rouge, of the Kurds of northern Iraq by Saddam Hussein, of the Tutsi of Rwanda by the Hutu, and of Croats, Muslims, and the Albanians of Kosovo by the Serbs. She continues, In all cases except the Kosovo Albanians, the international community and its Western leaders failed to act in time. The slaughter of the innocents continues. Christianity alone among the religions of the world, has the power within itself to look squarely in the face of the brutal atrocities that we see in this world. And even as we weep along with Rachel over her children, we can remember that the dragon has been defeated. We live in a time of war, and we always will until Christ returns. The darkness is great, and when light shows up, the darkness is stirred. Yes, there is real evil in the world. There is no place for banal sentimentality in the Christian faith. But yes, Christ has come, as 1 John tells us, to destroy the works of the devil. So we do not lose heart. The last thing. Matthew teaches is that Jesus comes from deep lowliness. That's what we see at the end of the chapter. Look with me. Herod dies, thank God. And again, an angel directs Joseph when and where he should go. He says, it's time for you to go back to Israel, verse 20, verse 21. And so Joseph heads back. Initially, he wants to go home, naturally, back to Bethlehem. But Herod's son, we read, Archelaus is now in charge, and an angel warns Joseph in another dream, verse 22, to find a new place to live. And so Joseph's family goes north from Jerusalem to the district of Galilee, 
which was a geographical region inhabited by the people of Israel, but was independent of Archelaus' rule. And then we see Matthew gives us a third reference. Look there in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is, I'm going to nerd out on you here for just a second, okay? This is, to me, very interesting. Can anybody tell me in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it's said that Jesus will be a Nazarene? If you look at the other two quotes, most of your English Bibles have a reference or a footnote telling you where the quote comes from in the Old Testament, but you don't see that in verse 23. And the reason is because this quote is nowhere in the Old Testament. In fact, the town of Nazareth did not even exist yet when the Old Testament was completed. Uh, Josephus doesn't even mention Nazareth in his listing of towns in Israel. So what's going on here? If you want to get into the weeds, you can talk to me afterwards and I'll talk to you a little bit more about it. But, but the bottom line is that what Matthew is doing here is giving a, a summarizing quote that gives a thematic element from all kinds of different Old Testament prophecies that he's telling us Jesus fulfills. And the summarizing idea that Matthew's getting at here is that Jesus comes from deep lowliness. Remember what, just as an example, Isaiah 52 and 53 say about the suffering servant, that there's nothing about him that's going to be impressive. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The fact that Jesus grows up in and comes from Nazareth, of all places, shows us that Jesus comes in humility. He comes in lowliness. Nazareth was even smaller than Bethlehem. I just said it didn't even get listed by Josephus in his catalog of towns. Nazareth is Nowhereville. It's Nowhereville. It was a forgotten place. It was a place where no one would suspect any important person could ever come from. Robert Caro is a famous historian who's written a series of biographies about LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. And um, the first of the books talks about LBJ growing up. He grew up, of course, in what is now Johnson City, but what was then a little bitty Nowhereville, Nazareth sort of place. And LBJ grew up there and went to uh, what is now Texas State. What was it then? Southwest Texas? Southwest Texas State? That's where he went to college. And, and Caro tells us that even when LBJ was a college student, he made up stories about where he came from because he wanted to have power. He wanted to be seen as impressive. Why would LBJ make up stories about where he came from? Because he's from Nazareth. He's from Nowhereville. He's from a place no one would ever expect a powerful person to come from. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why Jesus has so many conflicts, which we're about to start seeing, with the leaders in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Austin. Nazareth is Johnson City. There's no respect for people that come Nazareth, and Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. He comes from a lowly place. There's another story in the gospel that proves this. In John 1, Philip, a Jewish guy, has encountered Jesus, and he's super impressed with Jesus. 
And, and he runs and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I've met this guy that I think might be the Messiah. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what Nathaniel says? Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth shows us the way God works. I don't want you to miss this. God does not operate on the world's terms. God does not operate in the way any of us would expect. Christmas, if it teaches us anything, teaches us that. The king came in the form of a helpless baby. And then that helpless baby, the king, grows up in Nowhereville. He grows up in Nazareth. You see, the world, as we all know, is all about pecking order. We all have to find someone else to look down on in every area of our lives. If you went to Harvard, you look down on any non-Ivy Leaguer. If you went to Baylor, you look down on Tech. If you went to Tech, you look down on, I don't know, you get the point. Um, it's near the bottom. Uh, and uh, I, I, Tech's Nazareth. I read an article this week in the New York Times about uh, this young woman. I can't remember her name, but she's had this modeling career that's taken off because of her self-produced YouTube channel. And uh, she's getting all these major jobs in, in the fashion world. And the article, classic of the New York Times, the most non-Nazareth magazine on the planet, or newspaper on the planet, quoted all these kind of uh, industry insiders in the fashion industry. And the quotes they had about this woman were just brutal and kind of funny and make my point for me. One supermodel was anonymously, of course, quoted as saying, she has a face that any woman could have if they really wanted it. And I was like, oh, that is brutal. She's just got such a natural, normal kind of beauty. She should never be a supermodel. Nazareth. She's from Nazareth, they said. The world's all about pecking order. It's all about looking down on others. It's all about status. But what does Jesus' life, especially his early life, teach us? Why is Jesus a Nazarene? It's to help us get that God comes for the lowly. God shows grace, and God is for the least. God always chooses the weaker. He always chooses the barren woman. He always chooses the one no one else wants. Why? Because he's telling us about the way of salvation itself. Every other religion says, every other religion says, here's how you can be saved. Live in a certain way and be accepted. Jesus says, you'll never summon up that kind of strength. I didn't come to tell you how to save yourself. That's salvation by works. I came to save you myself. Every other religion, because of this, appeals to the strong. But Christianity and Jesus appeal to the weak. It's only for the weak. Salvation has to be received as a gift by those who recognize how lowly they are, how weak they are, that we're all from Nazareth. Salvation destroys pecking order. Jesus didn't come for the deserving. Jesus didn't come for those on top of the food chain. There's no one who's deserving and there is no food chain. That's what Christmas is about. 
And if you can just simmer in that for a minute, isn't that liberating? There's no performance required. There's no works required. It's all a gift from the lowly Nazarene, just like the gifts you'll receive tomorrow. Christianity is absolutely not. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. He knows if you've been bad or good, Baba. So you better be good for goodness sake. That is not the gospel. Don't play that song tomorrow morning as you're opening up your presence. Christmas and the gospel is free gifts at no cost that can change you forever. That's what God wants us to see in causing the king of the universe to grow up in nowhere. Matthew gives the sequel here. And invites us to trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. He will lead us out of bondage in a new exodus. He will be with us in the inevitable war of life. Even in our weeping with Rachel. And he will accept us in our lowliness. Because he too is lowly. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray.